Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. I want to start the program out tonight by talking about an industry uh, practice that has been causing some problems lately. And I, I, I dealt with it today a little bit, and so I thought I'd make a mention of it on the air. Um, Anybody that's worked in networking for more than five minutes has probably had to terminate a patch cable at some point. In fact, back when I was uh, in high school, I was going through the, the what what my high school considered to be their networking class, and a, and a, and a, not a disproportionate amount of that class was sitting around learning how to make patch cables. Well, anybody who's tried to do it knows that trying to the, the first few times that that you try and do it, it almost seems impossible to get all little eight wires to get in the right order, and then be short enough to fit inside of the RJ45 connector so that the crimp block can 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 tighten down right on the jacket and hold all of those wires in there. But after enough times and, and with a little bit of technique, you can you can perfect it. Um, l- recently, in uh, the IT sphere, there is a new type of RJ45 connector that's going around. And I, I've seen these for sale at a lot of electrical supply places as well as Amazon. Um, they're they're actually fairly well reviewed on Amazon, and what they are is is what's known as a as a as a pull through uh, connector, and so it takes the individual little wires, and pulls them through the RJ45 connector, so they actually come out the front side of the RJ45 connector, and then you take whatever tool you want and you snip off the ends, and the, the promises or the idea or the goal here is that you have an easier way to get all those little wires lined up. You don't have to worry about getting them to the right uh, uh, length because whatever is just sticking out the front, you'll just cut off and, and then move on. A couple of problems, though, that we've noticed over the years. Uh, first one is that on certain Cisco devices, um, they won't seat properly into the um, in 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 the in the switch port, and so that's caused uh, some intermittent issues. Well, today I came across uh, a new problem that I'd not seen before. Uh, it was in a camera installation, and the the um, client called and said, hey, the our, our cameras are not working. Now, we didn't originally do this camera installation, so I went out to take a look at it, and the installers who had done it were using those pull-through uh, wire connectors. And what had happened was it's almost impossible to get those wires to shear off completely. And so what happened was two of the wires were sticking out a little bit. They made contact with each other, shorted because of the PoE out, uh, the the and then the whole end just turned black and burnt and so pulled it off and chopped the end out. Luckily, uh, not the um, camera wasn't damaged, the the, the POE switch wasn't damaged, none of that. It was all fine. Um, but just if you see those connectors or if you hear somebody telling you about the next greatest way to crimp RJ45 connectors, you heard it here first. Stay away. It's bad. It's a trap. They're no good. Learn how to do it the right way. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That is the way to join the program. Make your voice heard. We'll take your questions on Linux, on business. Uh, 
I want to get to a piece of feedback. You, we usually don't open the show with feedback, but Joseph H. wrote in uh, with a bit of a correction to something I said on the air, so I wanted to address that right off the bat. He says, hey, Noah, first of all, I thoroughly enjoy listening to your show and have enjoyed the real-life insight that you provide all the way back to the JB days. I wanted to quickly point out something you were talking about in the most recent show, and it will apply to Xfinity customers. You were telling a write-in guest about setting their provider-supplied modem into bridge mode to use their own routing equipment. While this is best practice, short of providing your own equipment and save the rental fee on the modem, it will actually hurt a section of your listeners who are Xfinity cable subscribers. Let me explain. Anyone who has an Xfinity and uses the company's supplied gateway with their gigabit tier of service will notice something odd when setting up in bridge mode. Their bandwidth will instantly be capped to 500 megabits. I've done multiple tests, and this single change drastically impacts service. I'm not sure why they did this other than just being another questionable business practice to keep people tied to the rental equipment. However, there is a workaround. If you use your own router and can still access your account page, you can set up port forwards. Yes, I know this would normally be done via logging into the modem router, but not with Xfinity. Click on the connect tab. Click on the C networks. Under advanced, you will find port forwarding. There you can forward all of your all of your ports, port 1 to 65535 on your own router's IP address. Then connect all of your devices to your router, and then you can set up real port forwards to individual devices. The Xfinity provided gateway will effectively be in bridge mode and will allow for full use of gigabit service without being capped at 500 meg. I know this is a lot to go through, and I think a much better option would be to use a modem that you could provide in conjunction with the router that you also own. However, in the meantime, this is a way to make things work. Thanks for all you do for the Linux community, the Linux Trucker. Hey, thanks, Linux Trucker. I really appreciate you writing in and sharing this with us. And you're right. Uh, I, I I was not aware of that, and so I really appreciate it. I did make a call to a couple of uh, – we don't have Xfinity here in this area, but I did make a, a couple calls to a um, colleague of mine that, that does do work a lot with Xfinity, and he confirmed everything you're saying. So we will write that up, and we'll have that in the show notes, the steps to do that. Um, you'll find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Probably also get them on Linux, the, the Linux Delta wiki, which is at wiki.linuxdelta.com. Jacob joins from Grand Forks. Hey, Jacob. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Good to talk to you again. Hey, same. Hey, I have a question. Uh, I've been trying to call you or call your radio show over my mobile phone, and it keeps, like, blocking me. I was wondering if you had any insight to that. I don't. You know, I, I, we had a couple of issues uh, last week and the week, but last week we had issues with our streaming. The week before that, we had issues with our phone. So I, I'm not sure if there was just some general crud going around um that has now since resolved our streaming people guys got over here and fixed that and i had them look at the phone system they couldn't find anything so i i I think it's back up but certainly if you have problems please do let me know and and we'll continue to look into it okay uh now for my my main question i'm looking for an online form builder a self-hosted one if you knew of one okay um well, let's start with this. Uh, so the, 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 the first thing is I'll start with the, uh, the, the, the easy go-to uh, if you just need to get something done. Um, it's not self-hosted, but we'll start there. And that is... Uh, sorry? What's that? Okay. So, uh, sorry, I, I, I thought she said something. So uh, we'll start with... Uh, we'll start with with uh, with the, the the form the form builders that we typically recommend to people, and that's Wufu W 
W-U-F-O-O. And what I like about Wufu is, first of all, it's free. Um, so there's that. They offer a, a, a tremendous amount of flexibility, and the and you can get a good long way with their free plan. Um, then when you want to do when you want to start doing uh, more advanced stuff like dumping to a database and stuff like that, they do have uh, they do have pricing plans. But this is the contact form that we've used on our on our on our websites and and uh, what you use when you fill out a contact form on asknoahshow.com. And so I've been very happy with it. Now I've looked at a couple of uh, of, of self hosted uh, forms. I there are none of them that have really blown me out of the water. The closest one, the one that I liked the most, was Typeform, uh, or 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 excuse me, Teleform. I'm sorry. Um, and Teleform is an open source, self hosted uh, form thing that you can run on your on your on your on your website. Uh, the thing that kind of kept me away from it was it seemed like there was a lot of. Uh, there was a lot of overhead and actually just pulling up the, the GitHub page on Telform. Now I see that they do have a deprecation warning um, that they're not making a lot of, uh, a lot of updates for it. So maybe even that's outdated information. I haven't been real impressed, uh, Jacob, with what I found um, for, for self-hosted forms. Um, a couple other ones to look at uh, Orbion and form.io. Both of those are ones that we have looked at for our website. We've rejected them for one reason or another. Um, but if you're looking for something self-hosted, something that you can run yourself, that's that's where I would start. Is there any particular, I mean, is it more of a just a security data privacy thing is why you want to self-host? Yeah, pretty much. And I, I, I've used some other online form builders, but they don't give you a lot of control over the data. And so if you want to automate some tasks, you get very basic automation functionality, but I'm looking for a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. What, what I'm t- and I, I, I should be clear, I'm not a web guy, but the, the web guys that work for me and they're pretty smart have, have, have consistently told me that um, the way to go about this is to is to get into an infrastructure and then use that infrastructure to deal with the form. So, for example, um, either Nikolai. Uh, which is a static building platform or something like WordPress, uh, both of those uh, have the the uh, the infrastructure for putting forms and and building them in, so you don't have some third party thing hanging off the side. Um, the it seems like if you go the route of some sort of uh, of some sort of all encompassing platform like Nikolai or there's another one out Hugo, um, if you go with Nikolai Hugo or or WordPress, all of that functionality is there and it seems to work very well. It seems like there isn't a big market for just a single stand standalone uh, self hosted. I want to build this web form and I want it to store information here. At least there is. I haven't seen it. I'm sure now that I've said that, 15 people will write in and tell us and you'll find out next week. Hmm, yeah. I was looking at WordPress, but I, I just didn't like the idea of, you know, downloading or using a bunch of third-party plugins. That didn't didn't sit well with me, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, Jacob. I, I appreciate the call. I'm, I'm with you from the standpoint that... Uh, that third-party plugins leave a lot to be desired um, from a data privacy standpoint. Unfortunately, I don't know that there. Uh, I, I just don't know that there's a lot of other great alternatives. Um, but does that give you at least something to go off of? Yeah, I got a starting point, and I can probably go from there and, and let Google do the rest of the work. Okay, sounds good, Jacob. I appreciate your call. Uh, eight uh, eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email. Live at AskNoahShow.com. Robert calls from Texas. Hey, Robert, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, sir. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well. Um, just want to thank you for introducing me to Home Assistant, uh, starting off with. But um, as I've gotten this installed, um, I'm trying to find the best devices um, to kind of work an out-of-the-box uh, turnkey experience. Um, so I'm mainly trying to find the best bulbs. And then also, um, I know my light switches, they don't have grounds going to them right now. Mm. So I know that that plays a fact factor in that as well. So do you have any recommendations or any uh, open standard protocols that I can make sure to look out for whenever I'm shopping on Amazon or eBay or wherever? For sure. Uh, so the, the go-to run-of-the-mill uh, light bulb that, that works with Home Assistant that if you, you go to the forums or jump on the chat is going to get recommended is Yeelight. W-E-E-E, or excuse me, Y-E-E-L-I-G-H-T. Um, they're 30 bucks. They're available on Amazon. One of the things that I would encourage you to do, and this is kind of how I have picked out this stuff, I will go down uh, into the questions and answers section on Amazon and I'll type in privacy and I'll just look at what it says and I'll read you the I'll read you the, the, the one that comes up for the Yeelight and, and so on and then you'll understand why it's not in my house but it says even after the setup the app wants to know your location it doesn't need this information to function it works fine if you refuse to provide the location information it also wants you to pick from a region that happens to correspond to a list of locations of AWS cloud servers where they're probably hosting there's no reason a light bulb needs to connect to the internet if I'm not using Alexa or Google Home who knows what other information it's collecting and sending back to the company now these are things is it is it a step-by-step case to be made that that you light is is ripping people off and stealing people's data probably not um but it makes me a little bit uncomfortable and so i've, I've been a little hesitant but here's what i found um essentially you have the big players up top you have you know philips hughes those kinds of those kinds of, of, of big names that everybody recognizes they're a little bit more money, and they're almost certainly tied to some sort of cloud experience because that's the way that most people want to use them. Then you get this kind of brand, which is where the Yi Lights, and um, I'm trying to think of the other one that's that's around. Uh, um, but there's there, uh, there's there's a, there's a couple popular brands that that TP Link comes to mind um, that make light switches and light bulbs, and they're in that thirty to forty dollar range, uh, and they they're 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 just lower end but they're standard enough that they work with all of the stuff. And then there's the bottom tier, and that is very inexpensively made, almost hard to find, very strange-looking brands, uh, Chinese-made things that work with Home Assistant that you'll find out on forms and so on and so forth. Uh, the problem I've had with all three of these is none of them really cater to privacy. And so I, I, I can you find one that works out of the box with, uh, with Home Assistant? Yeelight will do that. Um, do I have any any reason to suspect that they're they're doing anything particularly malicious? No. In fact, take the app off your phone once you have the thing set up. It shouldn't matter because you shouldn't need your at least you and I wouldn't be controlling them from the app. We'd be controlling them from Home Assistant. So it's probably fine. Um, but I, I will tell you just in full disclosure, what I've done in my house is I've used Lutron light switches. And the reason that I've used Lutron light switches is because they communicate back with the Lutron controller. Uh, over their own RF uh, interface. They don't go over the network. And so I don't have 40-some devices that need to be updated on the network and firmware and all of that. The only presence on my network from a light standpoint is the Lutron controller. And that has a single MAC address and a single network cable, and it's on a single switch port. So it's fairly easy to keep that thing in check. 
And then above and beyond that, I've not noticed anything crazy or out of the ordinary happening with it. And so that's kind of lended me to trust Lutron. The other end of the spectrum, though, I, I, again, full disclosure, I purchased a Honeywell Redlink system and I had a, a sort of an opposite experience with that. Um, the Honeywell Redlink system all talks to the central base controller just fine. But that base thing wants to call home. It wants to call back to Honeylink to register with with their little cloud thing. And so currently that's disconnected until I can make a determination as to how I want to go about fixing that. Um, but I'm just I'm very uncomfortable uh, with stuff on my network that that that's communicating, Robert, with with stuff I, I didn't I didn't consent to. And so for, for that that reason, I have stayed away uh, from a lot of these devices, but they're certainly out there. And I'll have a link for you in the show notes One to, to address your ground issue. Um, I, I've not really noticed a, a lot of problems with uh, light switches requiring ground. It's, it's usually, it's usually easy enough to find something to ground to the, 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 the bigger issue that I've had in, or that we've run into is, and I'm not an electrician is that, um, there's no neutral wire in, in some older homes. And so in the cases where I meant to say, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. And so what we've done there is if you get a, if you get a, if you get a, if you get a decent electrician involved, they don't have, I thought they were going to have to run all new wire to the, um, uh, to the light switches and the outlets. And of course, like I say, I'm not an electrician. So that's why I didn't know that that's not necessary. Um, and they have a way of, of doing it, of getting a neutral wire into that box without running all the way back to the, the panel and exactly how they did that. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but that's what we've done is we've we've contacted a, a electrician to have them do that. I, I will tell you this though, the uh, the Lutron Radio Raw two system, the accessories or excuse me, the appliance which is the ones that just turn on and off, those require a neutral wire. However, the dimmer packs um, that you would use for most of your lights do not require a neutral wire to be present in the box. And so, uh, if you have a hot wire, if you have your your hot wire and your load wire, as long as those two are in the box, you can use um, the Lutron Radio raw two dimmers and it stands to reason then that their mastero series which is kind of their uh, their the series that they're they're aiming towards home automation enthusiasts um that it likely because it's the same it's the same style dimmer doesn't require a neutral as well um so if you're looking for light switches I would uh, head over to Lowe's or Home Depot and 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 take a look at Lutron if you're looking for expensive uh well-recognized brands that will work out of the box, but almost certainly are communicating back with some sort of central hub. You can look at something like Philips Hughes. And if you're looking for the, the, just the run of the mill, I just want to get started with home assistant. I just want to be able to turn some lights on and off. Um, I would took look at the Yi late. Um, one of the places I did use some of these lights was like, for example, here at the studio, I have them. And then also, um, in my kid's bedroom, I have, it's not Yi light. It's uh, the other kind Wemo, Wemo, uh, another company, same kind of story though, right? They, it's, there's no, I couldn't find anything that overtly calls them out on violating people's privacy. At the same time, there's a couple of questionable things that people are asking in the reviews. So it's on my list of things to, to replace when something better comes out. Um, but the, the thing I liked about the Wemo switches are once they're set up, you need, you do need the app to, to pair them to your access point. But once they're on your wireless network, you can get rid of the app. You don't need it for anything. Um, and you can do all the rest of the configuration from Home Assistant and just control them that way, which is what I'm doing. And then, of course, I have the Home Assistant app. Uh, so... Does that does that kind of give you some direction to go down? Uh, yes, sir, it does. Thank you very much. Um, I should go ahead and uh, throw in that I did have a another assistant, and um, I had the I have three I currently have three Philip Hughes Bluetooth lights, 
that do not require the hub. Okay. And from what I understood, I couldn't find anything online um, on how to set that up. Um, so I didn't know if those were compatible or not. So, but yes, sir, you, you did answer my question. Thank you. Okay, great. I, I think, I, and again, I'm not the guy to ask about Phillips Hughes lights, but I, I believe that, that what you can do is, is, is pair those um, to the hub and then allow the, the hub to talk to home assistant, I think is how the, the Hughes lights work, but I could be mistaken on that. I don't own any Phillips Hughes lights. Yeah, the, these that I have right now don't require the hub, so I don't even have a huge hub. Um, so, and it's not yeah, you don't. Not it's not either. something maybe you can add on. Well, that's that's something I can definitely look into, of course. So, okay, thank you, sir. Yeah, you bet. I'll have a link for those uh, U lights in the in the show notes, so you can check those out and and see if that's something that's interesting to you. Again, they're 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 very well reviewed on the community side, and I will give them credit for this. Um, if you go to community.home-assistant.io and, and, and just hang out there on their forms, a lot of times when, when something comes out that is, I guess, concerning from a privacy perspective, there's usually somebody that pipes up and says, hey, just so you know, uh, this is the thing that happens. Since we're talking about Home Assistant, before we move on, I'll just throw this out there because there's people out there far smarter than I. If anybody comes, if anybody comes into a out of the box solution for controlling RGB LED lights, I'd be very interested. Um, I am aware of the little, uh, I can't think of the, the exact part number, but there's a little like circuit that you can buy off from China for like $8 that allows you to do it. And I have a couple of those and I've played with them, but again, it feels like a bad science project. It feels like I'm piece. It feels like I'm building stuff. Uh, a science project and then trying to use that for for home automation i would like a a ready-made deployable thing um so if anybody knows that i can uh, that i can attach a a strip of rgb leds with bare ends on it and just uh use screw terminals tighten them down and then have a little controller that talks to home assistant and then controls the leds i I, we've been looking for one of those i can't find it so if anybody knows uh, or has another recommendation uh, for Robert, let us know. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Kenny calls. Hey, Kenny, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how are you doing today? Excellent. How are you? Fantastic. So um, my dad runs uh, an HVAC business, and I'm looking to back up data that's on his office computer to a free NAS box I have set up here at home. And what I'm looking for is, you know, something, it'll back up his data that'll be encrypted client-side, but I'll have some kind of a dashboard of some sort to verify that the backup is running so I can check and see, yes, the backup is running and his data is, is backed up. And um, I found that some things like um, Duplicati or Backup PC that, that have a, a backup server dashboard, I'm sorry, not Duplicati, you are backup. Okay. Um, that have that dashboard that you can look at, but those don't. I can't find anywhere where I can encrypt the files client side with that. Mm. I'm wondering if you had a solution. That's an interesting question. Is um is the is the client side running Windows or or Linux? Um, it's Windows. Hmm. Man. Um. Well. 
I so well let me, let me, let's let's see. So the, my my go-to solution for Windows for when we're backing Windows up to a FreeNAS box is a, is a company called VM, V E E A M. And uh, and they have a a free uh Windows backup thing, but I don't know for sure if it supports encryption. We've never tried to do that. Um at least not from Windows. Um, and I'm, I, I just looked at their site. Um, it does offer end-to-end encryption if you go with their... So they have a free version. It's the, it's the Community Edition, and that gets you 10 licenses for free. If you go with their backup and replication uh, version, it, it, it includes end-to-end encryption, but I, it doesn't specify how that works. So I'm not sure if, it, if they, you know, they, they, they may be selling you a backup service for that, right? Um, I'm not sure exactly what they're what their what their website is is indicating here just on a on a five minute uh, uh quick look but uh v e e a m is 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 where I, I might start the other way that you could go about doing that is if uh you could use something like well what i should ask is what kind of files are they um mostly word documents and um a quickbooks quickbooks uh backup file Okay, so the man, I was I was gonna say you could look at something like a Veracrypt vault and uh, and store the data in a Veracrypt vault and then have the Veracrypt vault um, sync back over to FreeNAS. Uh, let me ask you something: is is the is the is the FreeNAS box on site? No, it is not. No, it, that's here at my house. Okay, I'm sorry, you told me that. Um, so here, well, here's here's. Uh, in, in in absence of of me going out and googling, which I'm sure you could do yourself, in absence of me googling, here's how I would set that up. If you were a client and you came to me at Alta Speed Technologies and said, "This is what we want to do," I would create a site to site VPN tunnel between your dad's work and um and your home, or at least the section of your network at your home that has the FreeNAS, and that will accomplish getting an encrypted tunnel from his business. Uh, to FreeNAS. Now we don't have to worry so much about encrypting the data before we send it. The VPN will take care of that for us. Um, th- from there, what I would do is I would uh, I would use whatever agent you want to use to include the Windows backup agent if you want to, uh, and and just and have Windows uh, or use VM to uh, to move to sync all of those files over that VPN tunnel back to the FreeNAS box and store it on a data set. And and then to handle encryption at rest, I would use the encryption functionality of FreeNAS to encrypt that data set. Uh, and then the, the the data would be encrypted at rest. The data would be encrypted at transit. The only problem that that presents, or the only thing I don't like about that solution, is it means that the data is unencrypted as it sits at your dad's office. So if somebody breaks into the office and gets a hold of the computers, the data is not protected there. But I suppose the other way of looking at that is the data isn't protected now. If he, I mean, I'm sure he just has QuickBooks running on the computer, yeah? Right, yeah. Okay, then yeah, it, uh, my guess is that, um, then, then yeah, that, that, that's where I would start. Uh, as, far as, a, as, far as, as far as some sort of utility that you could install on a Windows client and will encrypt the backup and then send it over to FreeNAS and, and, and deposit it there, I, I don't know of anything off the top of my head and the 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 way that they would go about doing that probably means you'll be reliant on the client software then to decrypt the data um unless it's unless it complies to some sort of industry standard um and so i guess where where i get to with that is i would start by 
if if I can if I can use existing open technology um, that isn't going to prevent me from getting to isn't going to prevent me from getting to the data because the end of the day, your dad calls you six months down the road and says, hey, you know what? Uh, Thanks for doing that for me. Now I want to expand my office or I want to have my own backup server in my house. Uh, It's trivial then to just add a different site to site VPN, set up his free NAS, map that share and and send it back over Um, or swap free NAS out with open media vault or swap the, the, the client side software because you don't like the way that it's syncing or it makes the computer run. Or we had an issue with a a client where a certain, where a certain sync software uh, was conflicting with their PDF uh, editing thing. And so it wouldn't work with nuance. And so we had to, to, we we had to wipe the the sync client and get a different one. Um, It enables you to make some of those changes without having all your eggs in one basket. Okay. Yeah. So I, does that give you something to start? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The only other thing there is how do you go about um, yourself and whatever backup situation you're, um, you're setting up in, making sure that the backups are running and verifying that they're, you know, they're still working because if, sure. you know, your backups stop running for some odd reason, they're kind of worthless. Absolutely. Um, so the first rule of backups is, uh, you know, you, once you, once you think you have a backup solution in place, you should do a test, uh, make sure that the backup is in place and working. Um, but what I do is for, for the most critical servers that run, you know, all to speed that run, you know, things like our ticket system, at things like our scheduling system, those kinds of things, um, the way that those the, the way that those work are is that they uh, there is there are there are scripts that that put all of the data into uh, one tar.gz file, uh, and then there are sync scripts that that copy them over to a dedicated backup machine and then send me an email and letting me know if something went and this is the important part went wrong. Um, I have a report that's generated every single day that I look up. First thing I do when I get uh, when I get into my office and that report basically is what would be emailed to me if I had it email me when the backup was successful. The problem with doing that is it creates a very high noise floor and then I would start ignoring emails. Um, so that reports there. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't pour over it, but I skim it and I take a look and each, each thing, it tells me the date that the, the, the time and date that the backup completed. So I know that it happened today and it tells me the size, the, the Delta size. So it tells me what was different um, from the previous time. And I, I use some common sense to kind of just go, Oh yeah, yeah, that about makes sense. What I would expect to see coming from that particular server at this particular time. And you know, if we have a, a large job where there was a ton of documentation and a bunch of images and stuff, yeah, I do take an extra look and see and say, okay, yeah, good. Five gigs of data came across. That's good. That's about what we want to see. Um, and so I, th- those are the most critical things. If somebody pays us for 24-7 server management with backups, then there is a scheduled time once every 30 days where a technician logs into their system, make sure that everything is up to date. There's a, there's a, there's a document that they fill out and say, we, we checked this thing, we checked antivirus definitions, we checked firewall logs, we checked this. And part of that is backups were complete and had completed this many backups in the, in the past month with this much data and it's stored here. Um, and so, and we check on that, but that's something extra that somebody pays us to do. Okay. Right. So on the day to day, I'm just, I, I mostly trust that the backup's going to work. Um, and then I have a small verification process to kind of keep my eye on it in case anything is amiss. And if something does go amiss, then I get an email alert. If, if for example, a backup doesn't complete or has an error, then it emails me and says, Hey, something's wrong. And actually it does couple stuff more than that because it'll actually get a ticket opened up. And so in case I'm not here, somebody else can take a look at it as well. 
Okay, and what kind of software is uh, sending those emails? Uh, so we are in the well right now. It's Zabbix. However, uh, we are in the process of evaluating some uh, some alternative management software. Um, and I, I ask me again in two weeks, and, and the answer may be different. But right now, we're using Zabbix. Okay, awesome. That helps a ton. Great. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard and become of the program. Hey, I'm glad to have the first half hour filled with calls. I hope we were able to help some of you. Our pick this week is open and shut. This is an open source project uh, hosted on GitHub, and it allows you to send Morse code by repeatedly slamming your laptop shut. Yeah, you heard that right. It's a battle-tested encoding trusted by pilots, mar- uh, submariners, and amateur radio operators. Um, Morse code has been around for years. Uh, it's certainly something that I picked up when I got into amateur radio. One of the things that I like about it is you can send it with just about anything. You can send it with a flashlight in the middle of a boat if you want to. So it's a very robust language. You can hit well in excess of 100 words per minute. So it only makes sense that we would have a way to enter this with our laptops by slamming the lid shut. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a fun, uh, it's kind of a fun program. It's available uh, in, get, uh, on GitHub. We'll have, a, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. You'll also have an opportunity to take a look at a GIF where they demonstrate them slamming this ThinkPad open and shut um, to make, you know, various different letters. So now the, the, the tagline is you used to close your laptop lid and it would go to sleep. Now it writes the letter E. Uh, also in our gadget pick of the week, uh, a bootable compact flash CF2 2.5 inch SATA adapter. Now, this is something that we have been using for the past few years to bring legacy technology into 2020. Very often, we will come across a client who has a piece of hardware and they tell us, well, this computer I just can't live without because I need the SATA drive. I need, I need to have this particular software and the hard drive can't be any bigger than this. And back in 2001 when it was made, these are the size hard drives that it was expecting. Or we need an IDE drive and those are getting harder and harder to come by. Well, cheap Chinese manufacturers, and there's no particular brand of these that I like, that they're just a good thing to have around, um, make small little compact flash adapters that will connect to either a SATA connector or an old-school IDE connector, and it turns a compact flash card into a little hard drive. Now, Telos Axia has been using this inside of their mix engine for a while, uh, and so I had I tore a mix engine apart and found that this uh, $4,000 uh, or $5,000 uh, audio machine is running off of basically a little compact flash card. Additionally, the FreeNAS... Uh, I believe it's the FreeNAS Mini uh, runs off of a small little compact flash card. And so this is a very good way if you don't have a drive that is going to get beat to heck uh, with read and writes, it's, uh, it, it's, it, you get a little bit more speed. You get the speed uh, essentially of an SSD um, and in a very small form factor also with smaller sizes available because, again, a lot of old hardware doesn't know what to do with a two terabyte drive. Um, and so this is something you can find them on Amazon. I'll have the one that, that, that I ordered most recently from Amazon, but I've ordered them from Newegg. I've ordered them from Alibaba. Uh, you can get them just about anywhere, but it's one of the coolest little things that you, $13 little devices, uh, that, that you can have around. It also makes managing 
uh, backup and restoration of some of these appliances much, much easier, right? Because instead of having to reinstall the operating system, reinstall all the software, redo all of the configuration, you essentially set it up one time, you DD the card to a uh, to an image file, so DDIF and then the you know dev SDB, and then output it to uh, backup.img or uh, flash original flash image.img, whatever. And uh, then you store that image file. And if you ever need to restore that machine or anything ever happens to that machine, just DD the the image back to a a new compact flash card, stick it back in the machine, you're back up and running. Uh, So really fantastic. And I I, I dealt with this just a few weeks ago. Uh, We needed a computer. And the the, the caveat was we couldn't have a hard drive bigger than 64 gigabytes because that was the largest um, that that particular machine uh, would and the software and all that stuff would work with. And so we had to find a drive for 64 gigabytes. I said, I know just the thing. We went and got a flash, a compact flash card. Worked great. By the way, when you're buying compact flash cards, highly recommend Lexar or SanDisk. And uh, I recommend Lexar over SanDisk. Had a couple of SanDisk drives get, get kind of toasty and then uh, burn themselves out. So that wasn't really exciting. But Lexar has a very high, good track record, um, both in the professional video and the professional audio industry of having making very very high quality cards. And so if you get a Lexar professional card chances are you're going to you're going to be sitting pretty well. Hey, face masks are all the all the rage lately. Face masks are worn to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Um but we're finding out that they decrease the accuracy of commercial facial recognition. How much? By up to 50% according to an investigation of Americans te- of America's Technical Standards Watchdog NIST. Quote Using unmasked images, the most accurate algorithms fail to authenticate a person about 0.3% of the time. Masked images raised even these top algorithms' failure rate to about 5%, while many otherwise competent algorithms failed between 20 and 50% of the time. The accuracy also varies wildly depending on the algorithm. The best-performing algorithm was from Deep Glint, a computer vision and AI startup out of China. It was able to correctly identify faces obscured by light blue face masks with a high coverage just over 96% of the time. Many had error rates between 20 and 50%. So there are a couple of abnormalities too, while algorithms had error rates of near or up to 100%. Uh, so what I take away from this, first of all, I think it's remarkably comical that the most accurate facial recognition in the world, even with face masks, is in China. Man, the jokes I could make with that. Man, the privacy implications of that. Man, the terrifying nature of that. But the other part of that is, I, you know, out of all of this COVID stuff and all of this pandemic stuff, I have I have tried to find a couple of really, uh, uh, really good gold nuggets, things that we can look at and say, well, here's a positive way to look at this on the positive side. I've met a lot of people at my house known as my family um, who apparently have been living there for a long time. Uh, and I have been working and out at places and traveling and all over the place and, and have not really had the, 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 the amount of time that I would like to have uh, to connect with them. And so COVID has forced me to be at home more often, forced me to um, to not be out and about. And I've I've really learned to embrace the time that I have with family. Second thing is the amount of innovation that has occurred in the United States and around the world is absolutely fantastic. The fact that we have 3D printed not only face masks and face shields, but also 3D printed accessories for uh, for making wearing masks more comfortable and 3D printed parts for ventilators and other hospital related things 
um, that can't be made by traditional supply chains. This is coming together out of not only op- the open source community, but the makerspace uh, have all come together and said, hey, here's a problem. We're smart. We have these things. We have these tools. Let's go make things. And so that's come that's, I would say, is a very positive thing that has come out of the epidemic. We've really realized um, the true power of, of, of community and, and what we can accomplish and build as a community. And this kind of rides on the, on, the, on the tail feathers of that from the standpoint of now we have uh, this debate going on if people are going to wear face masks or if they're not going to wear face masks or if they're going to be forced to wear face masks or if they're not going to be forced to wear face masks. And there's very good arguments on both sides, and there's people that, that – um, that are looking at this from all all angles, but nobody up until just now has really talked about the privacy implications that come along with wearing face masks, which, by the way, seem to be in our favor. If you're concerned about the fact that every time you turn around, there are more security cameras and there are more systems available to identify and track people, uh, to include even large department stores, putting cameras in their store and tracking uh, shopping habits. I saw... Amazon has recently launched one of their newest inventions, which is a store uh, that's completely cashierless. They have cashiers, but it's only for if you refuse to do it the way that they want you to do it. And the way that they want you to do it is they want you to take a cart. They want you to go around the store, pick up what you want, put it into your cart, and then walk out the front door. Cameras will track you and your face so they know who you are and where you've been. They understand your purchasing habits. They, They know what you've picked up. They know what your default payment method is. And so you don't have to... They. They don't have to worry about shoplifting. They don't have to worry about checking out. You don't have to worry about scanning everything. It's all taken care of. Um, this is a new way uh, that that Amazon is trying out retail. And mark my words, this is one of the things that is going to take off. Because when you are running a store, your largest cost is employees. And so when you all of a sudden can start to eliminate that labor force and replace it with technology and automate that technology, the vast majority of us are very comfortable shopping on Amazon.com. The vast majority of us are very comfortable at shopping on, a, on an online store or a shopping on a big box store and having it delivered to the store and just go picking it up. So you take that one step further to the point that I can just go into the store, have the things that aren't readily available at the store delivered to the store and just pick those up. And then the things that are very common and are for sale by a lot of people, well, you'll just walk around the aisles and pick those things up. I don't have to deal with another human being. I don't have to touch any sort of POS system, scanning system, whatever. Simultaneously, I've reduced my employee costs. I have increased the uh, the, the the likelihood that somebody can get out of a store without touching a shared surface, thereby uh, re- at least somewhat reducing my exposure risk uh, to infectious disease. And I have increased the convenience on the customer. If there's if there's some sort of product that maybe is, is is slightly embarrassing or maybe you just don't want people to know that you're buying that thing, now the only person that knows is the computer and, of course, all of the people that go through the data back at Amazon. Um, so this is this is a this is a new way of of a world functioning and in a new way of a world functioning, there are people asking questions like, well, what does this do for privacy? And it turns out this might be the first time we're actually going to go backwards from the, from the privacy standpoint where now I have a little bit more privacy than I had before. It's perfectly socially acceptable now to obscure uh, the, the one thing that is tied to me that I don't get a say in, right? I get a say if, you ask me for my driver's license and I refuse to give it to you. I get a say if I don't use a debit card and just use cash. I get a say if I don't sign in or put my email address in or sign up for an account. I don't get a say in 
my face. And when you capture that face and you take that information and you analyze that information and start collecting my habits without my consent and without my knowledge, that's a problem for me. But what I'm happy to see, at least in this case, is that we're going the other direction. Unless China has their way, in which case they have proven that they can make a facial recognition system that works even through face masks or around face masks, I guess, as it is. 855-450, Noah. That's one 855 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Two-bit in the chat room adds that N95 masks are the ones to watch out for because they reduce your oxygen intake. Again, arguments on both sides. Yeah, it's kind of outside the scope of this program. Hey, there's a massive vulnerability that came out. This vulnerability allows for the unauth- allows for unauthenticated attackers or authenticated users with network access to the configuration utility of a, a basically, from what I can tell, because uh, this is outside the, the scope of the kind of things that we install at AltaSpeed, um, but it's essentially a load balancer. It's called the Big IP, and it's a network security appliance that um, that essentially does load balancing. Well, there there was a massive vulnerability that allowed uh, attackers to execute arbitrary system commands, create or delete files, disable services, and execute arbitrary Java code. This vulnerability uh, may be the res- may result in complete system compromise. The Big IP system in appliance mode is also vulnerable. This issue is not exposed on the data plane, only on the control plane. Um, so attackers are are using this to infiltrate some very large organizations and even some government organizations because apparently this device is very widely used. Additionally, there is a second exploit found in a network product sold by Cisco tracked to CVE 2020-3452. And uh, this flaw resides in the company's adaptive security appliance and their fire in their firepower threat defense system, it allows unauthenticated users to remotely view sensitive files that, among other things, can disclose web VPN credentials, bookmarks, web cookies, partial web content, HTTP URLs. Uh, Cisco has well, both Cisco and the 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 uh, F5, the manufacturer of the Big IP, have issued fixes for this uh, weeks ago. But if you haven't applied them, uh, you need to do so immediately. In fact, this is one of the, the 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 writer of the article jokes that this is one of those things that you better stay up late tonight until it's done, um, because this is a massive security flaw. And I, we bring it up on the show for a couple of reasons. First of all, because if there is anybody out there that has these appliances in production, of course, we want to make sure that you're aware that there is a, a massive security vulnerability and, and you should patch it. The other thing, though, that I would add to this, this is the kind of stuff that gets fleshed out when all of the code is out in the open rather than when it's some big proprietary blob that sits up in the middle of nowhere and only a handful of companies use these things because they're so terribly expensive, right? The reality is that a lot of security flaws and a lot of security you know, problems are solved uh, or at least found simply by a large majority of people banging on things in a different way. Um, but when you have appliances that are just thousands and thousands of dollars and the company is so far removed from the community, it's impossible uh, for them to, for the community to get involved and and try to offer some insight. And this is probably why you can have something like Nextcloud, who, despite having a bug bounty, if you can find a, a security vulnerability, they'll give you thousands of dollars. If, but nobody can find it uh, because they had enough people knock on the code and say, "Here's a here's a bug. Let's fix that. Here's a problem. Let's fix that. Here's a problem. Let's fix that." When it comes to F5, they have no such resource, and so they're kind of on their own. 
And so if you have, uh, if you have an F5 big IP system appliance in use, um, be aware that that management port uh, can execute arbitrary co- code and um, that management interface is compromised and, and you'll want to patch it. MS Defender ATP comes to Linux, quote, to meet our customers where they are and relieve customer challenges in managing multiple security solutions to protect their unique range of platforms and products, we have been working to extend the, riches, the richness of Microsoft Defender ATP to non-Windows platforms. And today we are excited to announce the general availability of Microsoft Defender Advanced Threat Protection for Linux. Adding Linux into the existing selection of natively supported platforms by Microsoft Defender ATP marks an important moment for all of our customers. It makes Microsoft Defender Security Center a truly unified surface for monitoring and managing security of the full spectrum of desktop server platforms that are common across enterprise environments, that is, Windows, Windows Server, Mac OS, and Linux. Uh, so, first... I, In the past, when Microsoft comes out with something like, for example, Teams for Linux, I say, well, I guess that's kind of cool. This is the first time I'm actually kind of excited over what Microsoft is doing. And I'm excited because I've not really seen any large-scale threat management protection for, for Linux that's really targeted towards the average user. Certainly when you get into specialized industries, um, there is there is very high level software that is designed to be used uh, for managing large clusters and stuff like that. But when you get down to just, hey, Bob has a server in his office and would like to make sure that it doesn't get compromised. Is there anything to put on there right now? The Windows folks have that available to them. Right. And to a lesser extent, Mac OS folks have that available to them. And occasionally you'll see, you know, so, uh, an open source uh, of antivirus that gets touted. But for the most part, there is no widely accepted uh, industry solution. And Microsoft Defender ATP is the first example that I can think of in where you have a very large multi-billion dollar company that is constantly putting effort into security, not because they necessarily care about Linux per se, but because they care about the security model of Azure and the security model in general of of providing a value uh, to their customers. And what their customers have told them, what you and I have told Microsoft is Linux is part of our infrastructure. Linux is going to be running on our servers. And so if you want to create solutions that work for us, you're going to have to make that work on Linux. And so when our when our system administrators need to be looped into discussions, they're going to have to have teams for their laptops. And when we manage servers, we don't want to run one piece of software on our Linux servers and one piece of software on our Windows servers. So we're going to need a central managed solution. We need one thing that we can install on everything, and that is Microsoft Defender ATP, or at least it can be. Is it open source? No. Uh, Does it require a software license? Yes. Uh, It requires the Microsoft Defender ATP for servers license, and I'm uh, I'm sure it's a pretty penny. But at the end of the day, this is an actual tool that we didn't have prior to Microsoft making it, and now we have it after Microsoft made it. When Microsoft released Teams, we already had Slack, we already had Rocket Chat, we already had Mattermost, we already had Matrix, we already had Telegram, we had plenty of messaging platforms, we already had Discord. This when they when they when they when they go to add something, it's particularly when it's just some electron wrapped app that they just uh, took the web version and said, "Okay, here's a deb, good luck," or Snap Package, good luck. That doesn't really imply any investment, I guess, from Microsoft. But when Microsoft comes out and says, well, we're going to make this threat protection model 
for Linux. I and I'm speculating here to a certain extent. I don't believe it's just a well, we made this for the other three platforms. We may as well just publish this thing uh, to Linux as one additional thing. I think Microsoft is looking at this and they're saying, you know what? Linux is a massive part of people's infrastructure these days. Linux is a massive part of keeping people secure. And if we're going to be, if we want to be the company that's going to be their one-stop shop to buy all of their software from, then we have to make software for Linux. And so that's what they're going to do. So good job, Microsoft. I really appreciate you coming out and and producing a, a piece of software that we that I get that I have not seen a really good clear competitor to at the moment. Um, certainly not one with the brand recognition of Microsoft. Uh, and so if anybody uses it, I'm, I can't say that I am going to rush out and 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 purchase uh, server licenses for Microsoft Defender ATP and install it on all of my Linux boxes. But I'll certainly probably at least give it a whirl so I can see what it's all about. 855 450 NOAA, 855 450 The email live at com as we wind down the program. Uh, we talked last week about a new version of Element. Um, that is the replacement client for Matrix. Uh, it replaces Riot, specifically Riot X, which was their um, leading uh, bleeding edge development version. I have been playing with Element uh, throughout the last week, and I have to say, this is a definite improvement. Um, uh, again, Right off the bat, the ability to change between organized by activity and organized by uh, alphabetized lists is if, if I had nothing more than that, it makes the client more usable because when you start getting into a number of chats, it becomes very difficult to find uh, the, a particular chat or a particular person that you were talking with. Now, if you know their name or you know their screen name, of course, you can use the search functionality, but if you don't uh, and, and trying to to keep on on top of who sent you the last message could be a little confusing. In the previous version of Riot and Riot X, when you would favorite something, it would simply go to the top of the list. And so the first thing that you favorited was on the bottom. The last thing you favorited was on the top. Uh, with the with the new version of Element now, they allow you to organize by uh, alphabetized or uh, by latest activity. And so that's been really nice. I've also had an opportunity to play with the SMS bridge. Again, something I mentioned last week, but I hadn't really dug into it. Uh, I, I just kind of set it up and, and, and tested to see that it works. So now I have a little bit more experience with it. Um, SMS bridge, SMS matrix, excuse me, is an app that's free on F-Droid. You can install it. And um, what you do is you open uh, the SMS app on your phone, uh, SMS uh, matrix on your phone, and you give it a username a password of a authentic user on your matrix home server. So for example, uh, you know, you could use like a bot SMS man or something and um, create a username and password, enter that into the app. Then you tell the app uh, what your username is. And so you just put that username in and that's it. Save the settings and then you're done. When your phone gets a text message, the SMS uh, matrix app takes that text message and invites you to a chat in Matrix. And so you get a notification that your your bot that you've set up is asking to invite you to a chat. And you click accept. And it changes the topic of the conversation to the phone number of the person who texted you. And then it goes through your contacts and renames the chat to the person uh, that that texted you. And so when you look at a text from a person uh, that has texted you, the way that it presents in Riot is, 
Bot has created and configured the room. Bot has invited you. Bot changed the topic to the phone number. And then you can talk to that person as if they were a Matrix user. And this, in seven days, has, and I'm, this is no exaggeration, has transformed my life. Um, I was on severe weather watch for, for the radio station. And uh, our, our staff meteorologist wanted to be able to come in and, uh, and talk with me about, hey, here's what's going on with the weather, because he obviously understands meteorology. I don't. He wanted to have all of these conversations over text. I'm sure he might have been able to do it a different way, but that was kind of the way he sought to reach out to me. I didn't have my phone anywhere near me. In fact, I'd forgotten it that day. It was sitting back in my house on my, uh, on my bedside stand. But because I had Riot, because I had Element, I was able to open it up and I was able to carry on this conversation. What I found after I got done with this massive long conversation, I'd completely forgotten he wasn't on Matrix. By the way, if you're interested in joining our Matrix server, we have it at linuxdelta.com, matrix.linuxdelta.com. We'll have a how-to up walking you through how to get connected. We'll see you next week.